Section 10. Personal Recollections of Early Melbourne and Victoria. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Lucy Burgoyne. Personal Recollections of Early Melbourne and Victoria by William Westgarth. Section 10. William Kerr, founder of the Argus, and town clerk of Melbourne. I am in the place where I am demanded of conscience to speak the truth, and therefore the truth I speak. Impug it whoso list. The Argus motto. Another of O'Shaughnessy's oft-repeated jokes was a good story about Kerr, and always told with that stereotyped good temper, which I fear the latter, with his strong orange antipathies, would, upon opportunity, have but grudgingly reciprocated. Two brither Scots happening to meet one day in Melbourne, one of them, presumably not long arrived, speared of the other. Did you kin and will incur here a boot? Will incur, replied the other, in reproachful astonishment. No kin will incur, the greatest man in a the tune, that a hard-headed, liberal-minded, common-sense Scot, as Kerr was in most things, should have had the orange infirmity, may be excused, or at least explained, by the fact of his being of Stranra, a Scotch town almost within hail of Ulster. That small and not over-much-known place has not been the least among the cities of Scotia, in contributing heads and hands to the colony's progress, including, besides Kerr and others, James Hunter Ross, a leading Melbourne solicitor, and my good old friend Hugh Lewis Taylor, who, er well out of his teens, was made manager at Geelong, and is now manager in London of the prosperous bank of Victoria. Kerr had a high order of abilities in certain literary directions, which might have given him a much better position than he ever secured, but for his indolence and negligent want of method. He had also a bad physical constitution, which had probably much to do with the other defects. Perhaps it was his literary turn that led him first, in his new home, to try a stationary business, which, under the style of Kerr and Holmes, afterwards Kerr and Thompson, in Collins Street West, was, I think, the precursor of that particular trade in little early Melbourne. But that had to be given up, and after some looking about, with no overloaded means, he established the Melbourne Argus. The preceding press efforts had, at my arrival, established three papers, which, by tolerant mutual arrangement in a bi-weekly issue respectively, gave the small public the almost indispensable food of a daily paper. Almost at the beginning, Faulkner's practical hand supplied the Patriot, handwritten for the first eight or ten numbers until type came from Launceston. 
This was soon followed by the Gazette of George Arden, and that again by the Herald of George Kavanagh. All three had, I think, the common prefix of Port Phillip. The Gazette, after a brief career, under its very able but rather erratic owner, went to the wall. The Patriot, under Borsequote, who had succeeded the overworked Faulkner, was, somewhat later, brought up by the Argus, under Wilson and Johnston, in succession to Kerr. The Herald, when quitted after an excellent and timely sale by its founder, early in the gold times, was soon after shipwrecked in the storm of vicissitude that characterized some of the first years of gold digging. With the editorial pen Kerr was in his element, and his naturally compatible tendencies found their fitting expression in the motto he adopted, and which still heads the paper. I am in the place where I am demanded of conscience to speak the truth, and therefore the truth I speak, impugn it whoso list. But even the little Argus required management, and Kerr was no manager. He was induced to sell it, and for no great sum pounds going a long way in those times, to Mr. Edward Wilson, who's thus laid the foundation of his subsequent great position and fortunes. Kerr was fortunate after this in securing the town clerkship of Melbourne, in succession to Mr. John Charles King, the first clerk. The corporation was still hardly beyond infancy, and Kerr's natural legal acuteness was of great service at his new post, where reigned he practically master, and was an authority far outside his official sphere, and even in legislative difficulties of the young parliament, for we are now entering into Victoria life, and the importance that was fast being developed with the gold. But after a time the old besetting infirmity turned up here also, and in a rather serious form, as connected with irregularities in corporation monies and accounts, which might have been compromising to any other than Kerr, with his well-known indifference to such vulgar good things. He had a remarkable resemblance, in more than one point of character and circumstances, to his brother Scotchman and fast friend till death, the Reverend Dr. Lang of Sydney, and had he possessed the physical vigour, not to say the stately proportions, of that most competent of members of the church militant. He might have been his Victorian rival in a far more prosperous and protracted career. In each there was a very combative mind behind the mildest of manner. Besides the pulpit, Lang sought successfully also the legislature, where, somehow, clergymen are not favourites. He was, in fact, in the first instance, one of our members for Port Phillip, and it was chiefly to his efforts and abilities that separation from New South Wales was eventually conceded from home. In the elective contests we saw some of the peculiar talent 
with which Lang fought his many political foes, when, with an imitable blandness of address, and the softest of mellifluous language, he would build up a many-sided argument, patiently and leisurely, and at last, as with bitterly biting end of a stockman's long whip, play the Wentworths of opposition, who, with more noise than effect, were ever snapping at his heels. But, alas, for the cause of human perfection, the doctor, being on a mission home, and by no means for the first time, for the promotion of the emigration of Scotch Presbyterians to Australia, his great and not unworthy hobby, and being short of funds, after raising in one direction all he could upon his bill of lading, horrible dictator, pledged elsewhere for the balance of his account a spare copy of the set, left with him in trust and confidence. Now was the day of vengeance for his foes, and they duly essayed to take it. But the imperturbable doctor was not troubled with too thin a skin, especially in a matter which was totally devoured of personal pecuniary advantage. The overdraft was, as he expected, readily made up by the public, nor did he sustain any great moral damage, even with his foes, as his indifference about money was too well known, first his own money, and after that other people's. Kerr was in a like plight, but a great deal more helplessly. If he escaped as to character with the many who knew him, yet of necessity he lost his good post. He was succeeded by Mr. Fitzgibbon, who, more fitly, I doubt not, than Kerr, has held this important office ever since, a period of no less than thirty-two years. This serious loss of means and position completed a breakdown that had probably begun before, so that Kerr was no longer able for first-class work. We may envy this opportunity to his old opponent, O'Shaughnessy, who, in power at the time, generously found him a small appointment, a station upon one of the railways, which gave him, at least, a comfortable and, in a social way, by no means ungenial home for the short remainder of his life. It was mainly at my good friend Kerr's urgent instance that I entered public life, which was in 1850, for the representation of Melbourne at Sydney. Doubtless he had his own aims quite as much as my interests in view, as he wanted the supposed good card, a Melbourne merchant, Scotch and Presbyterian, like himself, into the bargain, to play against the anti-Orange and Irish-cum-O'Shaughnessy party. I fear that his expected henchman was too cosmopolitan at times, but Kerr rendered me a more direct service at the subsequent election for Melbourne in Victoria's first Parliament by bringing me in at the head of the poll, which happened in this way. At the first count the poll stood thus, O'Shaughnessy, Westgarth, Johnston, Nicholson, 
the latter being out, much to his own and his friend's astonishment, as there were only three seats. Kerr, who was resolved O'Shannessy, should not be declared first if he could help it, called for a scrutiny prior to declaration. He had knowledge of a goodly scale of false voting on the Irish side, where, in fact, there was a legion of busy curs to my one, many of them having voted double, or, as with Sheridan's proposed yearly parliaments, oftener if need be, one had voted nine times in succession at different polling places. I fear Kerr was wrong, and that scrutiny should have been applied for after declaration, but Kerr was the most dogged of mortals when he had a mind and an object, was then in the zenith of his influence, and, best of all, for his side, he was king of the position as town clerk, so he secured his purpose, and O'Shaughnessy and I changed positions. I have a better service than this, and a much more general interest, with which to conclude my present sketch. A year later, the second year of the gold, during which it was estimated that fifteen millions of gold had been washed out of the drifts, chiefly of Ballarat and Bendigo. The colony was already flooded, and no wonder, by the convict element from Tasmania. To intensify this evil beyond all bearing, that colony's government, in view of relief from accumulating prisoners, had lately enacted a conditional pardon system the condition being that the criminal was at liberty for all the world except to return home, and forthwith, Her Majesty's pass in hand, he crossed to Golden Victoria. A cry of despair arose there, for almost immediately the towns, goldfields, highways, and everywhere else where havoc was to be made, were the almost daily scenes of the most atrocious outrage. One forenoon word reached town that five ruffians, taking position on the St Kilda Road, had stuck up and robbed some twenty of the merchants and traders on their way to Melbourne, including my friend John G. Foxton, the Anti-Transportation League. Then some years in existence held a great meeting, at which a large committee was appointed, and was enjoined to find an effective mode of dealing with this novel form of evil. I think that it was at my suggestion that each of the committee was to write out his thoughts and bring the paper with him, so as to have a basis for arriving at a prompt conclusion. Kerr was made convener, and he was not long in convening us. Only Kerr and myself responded, we may take a mitigated view of the others, for every one was busy over something in those days, many embarrassingly so for want of servants who had bolted to the diggings, while most of the committee had had legislation and incessant deputations and public meetings to look after besides. As to myself, I had vainly tried to find fifteen consecutive minutes 
for the subject. When Mr. Kerr asked me for my paper, I excused myself by pleading that it was so meagre that I would rather first hear his. Thereupon, in his deliberate way, he drew forth a sheet of fool's cap, and read to me, the Convict's Prevention Act, such it was for, with a few comparatively unimportant mitigations, secured by the ability and influence of Attorney General Stall, the impatient assembly, highly appreciating and determined to have the measure, promptly passed it by a large majority. This was Kerr's culminating public service, and I am the more pleased to have this opportunity to say so, as my name was rather unduly attached to the bill, from its having been committed to my charge. His prompt remedy, I doubt not, saved many a colonist, not only as to life, limb, and property, but from outrage in some cases worse than death. His scathing measure introduced, indeed, a new principle, for we unceremoniously clapped people into prison who held up to our courts the Queen's pardon. Her Majesty's representatives at home did not at all like it, the home government, indeed, refused to confirm the temporarily enacted measure, but by that happy safety valve understanding, which has perhaps saved some explosions, it was renewed and re-renewed as long as required. The letter of imperial law was doubtless violated, but Her Majesty's government first violated the spirit by authorising men unfit for England to go to Victoria. William Nicholson, Mayor of Melbourne, and Premier of the Colony. An honest man, sir, is able to speak for himself, when a knave is not, as you like it. In one of our colonial municipalities, which of them I have forgotten, as I heard my story so long ago, a working furniture maker, who had secured an order from the mayor for his official chair, was observed to be at particular pains over its construction, and, on being asked the reason, replied that he intended some day to occupy it himself. If the subject of this sketch had been of that particular trade, this would have been a very likely story to fix upon him not that he was of inordinate ambition, for, on the contrary, he looked quiet and contented beyond most around him. But he was always ready and willing to respond to the many opportunities of a new colony, and from his great natural gifts usually able to do them justice. Nature had given him all she could to make him a good and useful colonist, but there was one thing he had not had from her, because not within her power, and that was the school. He was probably not altogether uneducated, but he could not have had many chances in that direction, otherwise the facility with which he educated himself in life's practical work after he had reached manhood would have told for him as a schoolboy as well. 
In business, in public speaking and debating, and in public life in general, he took successfully a first part, but when he had to condescend to such schooling products as writing and spelling, he made confessedly only a bad second. But, again, a defect of this kind is much less of an obstacle in new colonies than in old societies, because for generations in the former the hand is relatively more important to progress than the head, and the man of work that the man of thought. In colonies, men of great natural parts, if ambitious, can usually take good positions, even if but little educated. At home this is hardly possible, and the consequent social distemper is there a danger to the state, a danger, however, which our education acts since 1870 must be steadily removing. I happened, on one occasion, to meet Nicholson's home employer in Liverpool. He had been foreman, if indeed so high as that, in a warehouse. When he told his employer that he had made up his mind to go to Port Phillip with his family, there was regret to part with so quiet and trustworthy a servant. But, as he said to me, not the least idea that the unpretending individual before him would, within a few years, take a position considerably in advance of his own. He set up a grocery shop in Melbourne, and was soon on the road to success. Then he stood for the municipality, which was hardly yet out of infancy, was duly elected councillor, and in a very few years became mayor of Melbourne. Then, gliding easily onwards and upwards, he entered the young colonial legislature of 1851 as member for the metropolitan county, North Burke. He had previously, as I have told, tried unsuccessfully for the capital itself, getting some compensation, however, in the next first. But with all this rising importance, he was ever the plain, unassuming William Nicholson, and when mayor or MLC both, he and his wife would be found in their shop as usual. So far, at least, as the other crowding duties would permit. When he formed his first and very brief ministry under constitutional government, prior to my definitely leaving the colony in 1857, he did me the honour to invite me to a place in his cabinet. If our young colonies may use the grand imperial term, as his commissioner of customs, with regret I was compelled to decline, for, from experience a few years before, I had found that if a man has business of his own, which he must attend to, he cannot possibly at the same time attend to that of everybody else. Premiers came in thick and fast succession in those days, for there was no small doing and undoing, and no little of general upturning, when an exclusively representative assembly took the place of the crown system. In its preceding complete or subsequently still partial condition, 
The land question was ever the chief difficulty, for whereas, in previous times, the people had been directed to conform themselves to land laws, now the new fancy all was that the land laws should conform to the needs of the people. Ministries rose and fell mainly on this question. When the second time Premier, I think in 1860, Nicholson left his name to a land act, as did O'Shennessy, Gavin Duffy, and others, and there is a ringing of the changes even yet upon that fertile subject. William Nicholson has passed to his rest, and Burns might have fitly awarded him his high palm, an honest man's the noblest work of God. Charles Hodson Ebden, Esquire But I thought there was more in him than I could think. Coriolanus. Methinks there is much reason in his sayings. Julius Caesar. All work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. The subject of this sketch might put in a claim for at least something towards redeeming Jack's dullness, for he had a few odd ways, and a fertile turn for epigrammatics, some of them not bad. He boasted of having Beau Brummel's antipathy to certain vegetables. During the early but brief allotment mania, he said that he feared he was to become disgustingly rich, one of his epis, which became a byword, and scored him a decided success. When some colonists, hearing him called by the name of Ebden, asked him if he was related to the great Mr. Ebden, his humorously delivered response to the effect that he was himself that happy individual, scored him another, perhaps smaller, success. I have often seen him score yet another, which, perhaps, in his own view, was not at all the least of that sort of thing, when, after writing in a rather neat and most distinct hand, the pen seemed suddenly under perilous, and a sadly dilapidated signature was the result. He always signed his name in that fanciful way. Ebden's name was so well known in the earlier years, indeed his gait and ways, his sayings and doings were so marked throughout, that to omit him from my list would leave a decided blank. But if the man had consisted of these little oddnesses just alluded to, whether first class or second, little would have survived of him as business-like John Bull fails to appreciate people who have no more solid backing than that. Underneath all this very gauzy surface, Ebden, as all who had his intimacy were aware, was withal a man of ability and good common sense, and, what was practically more, he was reputed to rank high in the role of success in the early allotment rig. Indeed, in the rapid fortune-making of that time, he contemplated a palatial residence for himself upon an ample frontage to Collins Street, next above the Bank of Australasia. 
Two back offices had been built towards the full idea, but the allotment game had already turned ere he got further, and there the incomplete work stood. The offices were readily sold or let, and from intended sculleries or what not, rose to be the places of business of two early firms of solicitors, Meek and Clark, on the one side, and Montgomery and McRae on the other. The spacious frontage remained long unbuilt upon, but it has since been taken as part of a temple, not, however, of the gods, but of very different people, the lawyers. He and I were on opposite sides of the political hedge, at least in the times when we were together in public life, both in Sydney and Melbourne, during the pre-constitutional era. He belonged almost beyond any others, the exceptions being perhaps limited to William Forlong and my friend A. R. Cruikshank, to the anti-popular and pro-squatting party, although subsequently, when there was the fact accomplished and no help for it, he accepted fully and cheerfully, as his election addresses put it, the reigning democratic platform. But he was not unkindly withal, and he helped my comparative legislative inexperience at Sydney, when we were both there to represent Melbourne and Port Phillip. He had done me a great favour also in making himself most serviceable for the German immigration which I had started from Hamburg in 1849. He was quite a German scholar, having finished his education at Karlsruhe, a name which he transferred to his pastoral station in the Port Phillip district. Ebden, like most others in it, did not bring much out from the allotment mob. When he returned afterwards to represent the district along with me in Sydney, I heard that a draft of cattle from the station was needed for expenses. These were still the reactionary times of such small things for all of us. But in after years he went on and prospered and he left behind him what might have been called a large fortune in any place where there were not a W. J. T. Clark and Henry Miller, and perhaps some few others besides in the rival category. End of section 10